All right, you can open your Bibles to Matthew, Matthew chapter 5, Matthew chapter 5. So Pastor Luke this week, as you guys get there, had asked me, since we're going on the leadership retreat, do you want us to have maybe Samson or someone to come in to preach on Sunday so we can be in here to worship? But, you know, um, I was so excited to do this with you, I said no, (laughs) absolutely not. I wanted to make sure I could do this with you guys this week because I'm just so excited about this section of Scripture um, and um, and what, what I think God will do in and through us in us having a better understanding of, of the law of God and Christ's redemption. So Matthew chapter 5, I'm going to read the text, and then we're going to do it together, unpack it. Matthew chapter 5, hear now the reading of God's holy and inspired word. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven." For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. As far as the reading of God's word, let's pray. Father, I want to pray over this message that you, God, would bless, Lord, your people, Lord, now in this room, and Lord, those who hear this message in the future that you would allow us, God, to be transformed by it, equipped, God, corrected, challenged. I pray, God, that you would allow me to get out of the way. Lord, I pray by your Spirit that you would teach your people, that you, God, by your Spirit and through your Word, you, Lord, would wash over us, God. You would change us that you would make us ready, Lord, to be effective tools in your hands. I pray that you'd be glorified, God, through what you do, Lord, to renew our minds. I pray, God, that you'd bless God and that, again, as I say, God, that people leave here forgetting me and remembering you and what they've heard from you. I pray that you'd bless, Lord, that I would decrease and you would increase. In Jesus' name, amen powerful section of scripture, do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. We're going to hang out here just for a little bit. Again, I told you as we do this section of scripture, we're going to do sort of a bird's eye view from above the city. Uh, Look at the, the, the context of the Bible. What does God say about his law, about the Messiah, about redemption, about what God does in history to bring about the glory of the Messiah? And then we'll kind of come down after that and we'll walk around on the streets a little bit. We'll look around, we'll ask some questions and hopefully bring a better understanding of this section of Scripture. Now, just so you guys know, this section of Scripture is not the only place of Scripture that talks about this subject in this way. The Bible has an entire context from Genesis to Revelation, God's revelation. God condescends and he tells us about himself. It's one unified message, right? We know it's 66 different books and letters by about 40 different authors over a period of just about, say, 1,500 years or so, or a little more. 
but it's one unified revelation. It's God himself. Peter says, the apostle Peter says this, that holy men of God spoke as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So you've got this unified message with all these different people, right? They're all different personalities. They have even different writing styles, but it's ultimately the Holy Spirit of God who is actually ordaining this entire process that's controlling its process so that God himself is really the original author of scripture. It's God's word, right? So the reason you might say, well, we know that, Jeff. Why are you saying that? Here's why I'm saying it, because God says that he does not change. God says he does not change, and God does not contradict himself. And so if we're going to ask questions about law and gospel, we have to go to the text of God's word, and not just a single part or place of scripture, but the whole of scripture. So you know we're reformed, right? Yes? If you didn't know that, welcome to Apologia Church, okay? It's right there. If you didn't know, we put that up there in case anybody wanted to leave early, they would know immediately. Um, but just kidding. Um, one of the pillars of the Reformation was sola scriptura, and that meant the scriptures alone are the only infallible rule of faith and practice, right? And so if we want to have answers to questions, we say, well, we, if we want certainty, we ask God, what does God say? Now, again, there's things we don't really know. If the scriptures don't speak to them, even in principle, then we say, well, those things we don't know. We can't bind things to people's consciences that God doesn't speak to. But if God has spoken, then we have certainty about what God actually says. So in the question of law and gospel and Jesus' attitude towards the law and the apostles' attitude toward the law, if we want to say, look, my view of the law of God and the gospel is actually biblical, then we have to say, show me in the text. And show me in the text, not in a single place, but show me as the whole of Scripture testifies. And this gets to the other part of us being a Reformed church. One of the principles of the Reformation, the the pillars of the Reformation, was sola scriptura, but it was also tota scriptura. All of Scripture interprets Scripture. Amen? And so if we're going to get a coherent biblical view of law and gospel, it can't just be with tidbits and sound bites taken out of context. We have to say, what does the entirety of the revelation actually say pertaining to law and gospel? Oftentimes in evangelicalism today, we have quips, we have certain sayings we say. So when someone mentions law at all, we are so, I think, far removed from what the scriptures actually say about this that we sort of just whip zingers out like proof texts at times. Like we say, we're not under law, but under grace. And that becomes sort of a peanut butter statement that's slathered over everything that essentially says the law of God is defunct. It's no longer relevant. It's no longer something that pertains to Christians. And we don't even even search the Old Testament. I mean, oftentimes I think that this would be an accurate thing. If you were to go up to the average Christian on the street street in evangelicalism today in the West, and you were to say, have you read your Bible? I think many would say, yeah, I've read my Bible. Well, what have you read in your Bible? I think oftentimes many Christians would say, well, I've read the Gospels, or I've read the entirety of the New Testament. Some might even say, I've read the New Testament 10 times, 5 times, or 15 times. And if you were to ask the question, how many times have you read the Torah? If you were to say, how many times have you read the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, the books of Moses, how many times have you read those books? I think a lot of Christians go, well, I tried once, and I got to Leviticus, and it got scary, and so I stopped. And I think we need to change our attitude in regard to that. And I'm going to show you two statements in Scripture as to why we need to change our attitude 
and then come back to Jesus' statement, and hopefully that'll express what I'm trying to get across at this point and was why our attitude towards the law needs to change and become the attitude of Jesus. So if you would, open your Bibles to keep one finger in Matthew and go to Psalms, the book of Psalms. It's a big one. And go to Psalm chapter 1. Psalm chapter 1, and I think as you guys get there, that this psalm is written pre-Christ, pre-Messiah. So this is written in the context of the law of God being given, the oracles of God being given to the people of God as a gracious gift of God, a real treasure for the people of God, not simply a curse. There were cursing aspects to the law of God, but really a gift, a treasure to the people of God. So when we look at the law of God and Jesus' attitude towards it in Matthew 5, we need to see what the whole of Scripture says regarding the law of God. And if you look at Psalm chapter 1, short passage, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Listen closely. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. Well, that's powerful, isn't it? When you think about the fact that oftentimes we think about the law today in our current context, wasn't always historically this way. We think about the law of God as simply a bad thing because there were aspects of the law that are really bad for sinners. Amen. I'll be first, the first to say it. The law is a curse to a fallen person. If you are still in Adam, still in the flesh, still in rebellion against God, the law will not save you. It is not good for you in the sense of showing good things about you. It shows you your sin. It increases your knowledge of sin. It even provokes you many times to do more sin. If you disagree with that, I'm going to introduce you to my son, okay? Or your own kids, right? But the law of God is not simply a cursing thing. It's also holy, righteous, and good, And the psalmist says here that blessed is the man who meditates on the law of God, listen, day and night. Now, I I wanted to show you that text because in light of our current, uh, the zeitgeist, the spirit of the age, I'm talking about in Christian churches, we think about the law of God as simply bad, as simply condemning. When in reality, the scriptures have a much more full-orb view of the law of God as good, as gracious, as gift from God, and also as a curse to those who don't fulfill it. And it leads you to Jesus, the one who actually did fulfill it. But we can't simply say, well, the law of God is defunct and over and done, and that should be our attitude towards it. That wasn't Jesus' attitude towards the law of God. And it's certainly not an attitude towards the law of God that you can maintain and read the book of Psalms. Now, if you would look at Matthew, sorry, um, the book of um, 2 Timothy, uh, Paul's letter to Timothy, his second letter to Timothy, 2 Timothy 3. Sixteen. Did I give you the wrong reference? No, there you go. Okay. If you look actually above that, because watch here, um, 3.16, all scripture is what, guys? Breathed out by God, and you're at Apologia Church, so what is it in Greek? 
theanoustos. The word is there is breathed out by God. All scripture is breathed out by God. All scripture is breathed out by God. It's the very revelation of God. Dr. White explains it oftentimes as if you put your hand in front of your face and you're talking like I am right now, you feel the breath touching your hand, bouncing off your hand. And that's kind of what's being expressed there. All scripture is theanoustos. It's breathed out by God. And notice when Paul writes this text to Timothy, he's writing it to a person who did not have the entirety of the New Testament canon. And so he's getting a letter from Paul and Paul says to Timothy, before the canon is completed, before the New Testament is done, he says, all scripture is theanoustos, breathed out by God. Now, quick question, which scripture is Paul primarily referring to at that point of time? Is it the Old Testament or New Testament? Well, it's all of it, but specifically he's referring to the Old Testament. All scripture is theanoustos. It's the Old Testament also that's breathed out by God and is, watch, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. That includes our Old Testament canon. That includes the law of God and the prophets. But if you look what he actually says to Timothy here, I think it's really powerful. Watch this. He says in after before 16, if you go to um, verse 14, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and watch this, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings. What's that? The scriptures, the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Did you catch that? He says to Timothy, before the New Testament canon is complete, what about the Holy Scriptures? That they're able to make you wise unto salvation. That's the what? The Old Testament Scriptures. So what what am I saying here? From the Old Testament to the New Testament, you have not only the psalmist writing about the law of God as good, you also have Paul saying to Timothy, post-cross, post-resurrection, post-ascension, that the scriptures, primarily referring at that point to the Old Testament canon, are able to make you wise unto salvation. In Jesus Christ, by the way. Now move now to Matthew 5. What is Jesus' attitude towards the law of God and the prophets? Jesus says, I'll read it again. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. We're hanging there for a second. I'm going to read to you a section. Now, watch this, please. Don't check out. I'm going to call you guys to a high standard now, okay, as Christians, Christians, oftentimes in our culture, we're used to, now I'm not condemning the church, this is the bride of Christ, but we're used to, in our day and age, sermons that maybe last 25 minutes long, 30 minutes long, and we're ready to get in and get out, right? We got our service, we got our thing, and then we're out again, and we oftentimes are not allowing ourselves to be challenged with the deep things of God. And I want to say, as Christians, we, we ought to get out of that place as Christians, If you were to be in America just a couple hundred years ago, you would have been at church on Sunday and seen it as a very good thing to be with your church family all day, literally from morning until night, in the word of God, eating together, fellowshipping, in the word again, eating, fellowshipping, in the word again, eating, fellowshipping, because that's what Christians do best, right? Okay. (laughs) But we we ought to have a higher standard as Christians. We ought to know our faith well and know our Bibles well. 
And we ought not take the attitude towards a sermon that actually gets into some pretty deep things. We ought not to take an attitude that's sort of indifference, or I'm going to go ahead and check out now because that's a deep thing. I'm going to read to you a section from um, Dr. Greg Bonson's book, uh, Theonomy and Christian Ethics. Theonomy just means God's law. Now, whatever you're feeling towards that is at the moment, leave that aside for the text itself and an exegesis of this text. If you um, want to pick up this book, it's around page 48 that Dr. Bonson gets into this particular passage, and I think it's wonderful. Um, in pa- on page 49... Dr. Bonson says about, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Here's how he unpacks it. A technical analysis of Matthew 5, 17 through 19 can secure a proper understanding of its teaching. Ready? Me namasete, Greek words there for do not think. Me namasete is a prohibition expressed by means of an errorist subjunctive and the negative. You say, I have no idea what that means. It's okay. It's on record at least, okay? It means, do not think. Now listen, if Christ's enemies had basely slandered him by stating that his teachings were at variance with the law, this is not indicated in the text. For the aorist tense gives the verb an aggressive force. Here's the point. What does all the aorist subjunctive stuff mean? Here's what it means. Do not begin to think as opposed to stop thinking. Did you catch that? This, this statement by Jesus is so forceful, it's not even Jesus saying to somebody that's around him, slandering him, hey guys, stop thinking. He actually says something quite a bit different. He says, don't even begin to think. Don't even let the thought start to enter your mind. Do not begin to think. He says, as opposed to stop thinking, which would require prohibition expressed in the present tense. The implication is that Christ knew the danger, listen, Christ knew the danger that his hearers or scribal opponents might misunderstand or willfully distort his doctrine of the law. So he commands them not even to start thinking that the Messiah abrogates the law. Now here's more. Katalusai is a telic of infinitive. Now this is abrogate, the word abrogate. Katalusai is a telic infinitive and can indicating that Christ did not come in order to annul, make invalid, or repeal the law. The sense of kataluo is that, uh, is that of dissolving or dismantling the destruction of something by separating its pieces. The word is particularly used of the destruction, pulling down of an established building, Matthew 24, 2, 26, 61, 27, 40, Mark 13, 2, Luke 21, 6, Acts 6, 14, 2 Corinthians 5, 1, Galatians 2, 18. What's the point? The word there expresses the idea of tearing down a building. This is the meaning of the word as it is used in language pertaining to physical objects. So watch this. In Matthew 5, 17, Jesus uses a vivid metaphor drawn from the language sphere of physical objects to teach that his relationship to the law is not one of invalidation or abrogation. So the Messiah has no intention of undoing the will of his father as it is found in the law and the prophets. Now, as to the prophets, 
Ton Naman comprises more than simply those aspects of the Mosaic legislation which have permanent moral application and sanction. The class of commandments, traditionally termed ceremonial or ritual, is also within the scope of the term. Nothing in the text supports a restriction of this term's reference to the moral law. Jesus is saying that he did not come to abrogate any part of the law. Christ stands in a positive relation to God's law. Not the smallest, Bonson says here, ceremonial or national ordinance being destroyed in its ultimate idea. Calvin, this is really good, and this will get the point right now. Calvin points out that the meaning of the ceremonies is eternal. While their outward form and use are temporal, consequently Christ confirms even the ceremonial law that man does not break, this is uh, Calvin, that man does not break ceremonies who omits what is shadowy but retains their effect. The Levitical ordinances were patterned after a heavenly model, Hebrews 8, and thereby, thereby typologically foreshadow the Messiah and his atoning work. Okay, you guys ready now? Take a deep breath. That's a lot, right? Here's the point of this section. What of the ceremonial law? What about that? Doesn't Jesus abrogate that? Well, what's the point here? That law and ceremonies points to the heavenly reality of those ceremonies. Do you get that? So what's that saying? If somebody says, well, the law is simply defunct and over and done and God's not concerned with that anymore, I would say, well, we need to test that claim for a moment now. Do you still have a high priest? So is the law still valid in that sense? Yes. Do you have a temple? Yes, a heavenly one. Do you have a sacrifice today that is relevant forever? Yes, Jesus sacrificed once for all. So when someone says that Jesus came and the law is done and it's over with, I would say if that was true, if the law was over with in that sort of way, it has, of course, changed the administration. But if it was, if it was over in that sort of way, then you've got a problem. What about our sacrifice? What about our high priest who intercedes for us daily? What about our temple in the heavens? What about those sorts of things? What about the Apostle Paul in Romans 3.31 who says this, Do we then make void the law through faith? He says, no! It's, it's, he freaks out for a moment there, and he says, no, we actually established the law. So, again, just, just again a bird's eye view. We're looking at just parts and pieces here for a moment. Now, just quickly as a review, just for a moment about last week, if you missed it. We can't understand the significance, guys, of Jesus' statement here in Matthew 5, 17 if we don't understand what the Old Testament promised us about the law of God. This is very, very significant. And I need you guys, if you remember anything from this sermon, remember this, that the Old Testament promised us things about the person of Jesus. Amen? We get that. And I think that should be something we cherish as Christians forever. The Old Testament tells you the actual person of Jesus in the Old Testament. Remember what uh, Timothy was told by Paul here in 2 Timothy 3? What did he say? That the scriptures are able to make you wise for salvation. And you, imagine, imagine Timothy. Imagine Timothy being, being held by his grandmother when he was a young boy. And his grandmother is reading to him or reciting to him the Torah, the law, and the prophets. 
And Paul says, in those scriptures, you're able, they're able to make you wise for salvation in Jesus Christ. Well, how could you say that? Jesus wasn't even there yet. Well, here's why. Because the Old Testament told you everything about the person of Jesus necessary to know him as Savior and as Lord. So quickly, just one text to point you to in the person of Jesus. You've got Isaiah 9. Child, son, right? And who is it? El Gabor, the father of eternity, the prince of peace. There's identity. Well, how about the work of the Messiah? That's also something the Old Testament told us about. And I'm going to tell you two things about the work of Messiah that you need to know to understand the significance of Jesus' statement here in Matthew 5, 17. So come up with me quickly, guys. Two things. One, the Old Testament told us, and this is just scratching the surface, the Old Testament told us in Isaiah 53 that the Messiah would redeem us. There's more than that. But there's a significant passage, a chunk of it you guys can go to. Isaiah 53, it says that he would be wounded for our transgressions, right? He'd be crushed for our iniquities, that the chastisement for our well-being would be upon him. And by his wounds, we'd be healed. And the Bible says that God was going to lay on him the iniquity of us all, that he would be counted among the rebels, Isaiah 53 says, and then he would justify the many as he would what? Bear their iniquities. So the redemption is in there, right? That's, that's there. That's for us. That's you and me in that text. That's what Jesus is doing in the world to save people from their sins. Our sins are washed away. He's the one that's counted as a rebel, right? He's the one that's counted as, as the enemy of God. And we are justified The many are justified because of him. Well, that's in the Old Testament, but that's not all. That's not all. And I think this is what we miss so much today, guys. I think what what we miss today in our culture today is we're missing the fact that there's a much larger story in the Bible about salvation than simply my personal salvation. I'm in there. I get this. Like, I'm saved. I'm in the family of God, adopted, sins washed away. Jesus loves me, and he died for me. He gave himself up for me. It's very personal. It is fiercely personal, right? But it's bigger. It's so much bigger. it's, It's a promise made to Abraham that you will have descendants as numerous as the stars. That's huge. And that's where it starts, this promise there. You're going to have descendants as numerous as the stars. That's a huge promise, and it begins there. And so all the nations are put into this promise. You've got Isaiah chapter 2. The nations are going to stream up to the mountain of God. And what's it say is going to go forth from Zion, from the people of God. As the nations stream up, Isaiah 2 says that the law goes forth from Zion. So watch this. That is long before the Messiah comes. We've got the promise of nations coming to God and that the law of God is an integral part of what God is going to do in the world as he redeems it. So you've got nations coming and the law. What is the law? The Torah goes forth from Zion. Then you've got more, Isaiah 42. I want you to go there quickly. Keep your finger there in Matthew and go to Isaiah 42. I showed you this last week, but I want you guys to have this in your toolbox. You know what the scriptures say. You've seen it with your own eyes. Go to Isaiah 42. I want to show you another part of the Messiah's work in redemption. Isaiah 42. Not long before Isaiah 53 and the promise of his death and his resurrection. 
Now watch what it says in Isaiah chapter 42. It says, Behold my servant whom I have uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. Watch this. Watch this. Watch. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth. Now, brothers and sisters, pause for a second. When I've said that the Messiah's mission has more to do than simply my personal salvation, that's the sort of thing I'm talking about. Jesus is not just saving individuals. When Jesus ascended, what does he say in Matthew 28, 18 to 20? He says what? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go make disciples of what? The nations. What's the text in Isaiah 42 say? That he's going to bring forth justice, that he is going to bring forth justice, not grow discouraged, establish justice in the earth, watch this, and the coastlands wait for his law. So you get this idea in Isaiah 42, watch this. Isaiah 42, this Messiah, he's very humble, but he is not going to grow weary or discouraged until he has established justice in the earth. And what's it say about the coastlands and these, these people? It says that the coastlands are waiting for his law. And lo and behold, Jesus, as he ascends, tells everybody, the authority in heaven and earth is mine. Now go get the nations baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teach them to what? Obey. What does the text in Isaiah 42 42 say? That the coastlands are waiting for what? His law. Are you seeing now the pattern in Scripture that God is doing something in the world through this Messiah and it's very full-orbed. It's not a truncated gospel of one individual thing. It's a broad thing And I think the best way to summarize it is the way that the text in Matthew does. In Matthew 4, it says, He went out proclaiming the gospel of the what? The kingdom. The gospel of the kingdom. It's a full orb picture of what God is doing for salvation in the world. Quickly, again, Jeremiah 31, 31. You can just write it down. You know the text. I hope you do. Jeremiah 31, 31. That God is going to make a what? New covenant not like the one that he made before, which they broke. He says the new covenant would be one where he would never remember their sins again. First, stop, pause. Yes. (laughs) Yes. If you're in Christ by faith and your sins are washed away, praise God. Like beyond this discussion about what does God say about his law and gospel, let's just hang there for a second. Jeremiah 31, 31 says this about you if you're in Christ. If you, are a, if you are a liar against a holy God, you're forgiven. Sin's washed away. If you're a murderer, sin's washed away. If you're a thief, sin's washed away. And if you were to bring it up to God as a forgiven person in his son and say, God, but what about this? God would say, I don't remember. I've chosen to not remember your sins. I've washed them away. But what does God say in Jeremiah 31? What does he say he's going to do with the law? Do away with it? 
It's going to be gone. He's going to put it away for good. That awful thing of law. It says this. He would remember your sins no more. And he would do what? He'd take his law and write it where? In your inward parts, in your hearts. That now the Torah is going to go from stone tablets outside the people of God to now internalize within God's people as he washes their sins away. There's more. Ezekiel 36, I pointed you to last week. Just go read it later. Quickly, what I want to make is an observation about that text. I need you to know it to understand why it's so significant that Jesus says this in Matthew 5. Are you ready? God says that he's going to vindicate the holiness of his great name, which they profaned among the nations. What's God saying there? I am going to show the world. I'm going to show everybody that I'm holy. And I'm going to do it in you, his people. He says this. He is going to sprinkle clean water on you and you'll be clean. He says he's going to cleanse you of all your idols. Hallelujah. He's taking them away. And then he says he's going to take your heart of stone out and he's going to put a heart of flesh in. So what was once hard can't penetrate it. God's going to give you a heart that's malleable. It's actually workable now. It's a soft heart towards God. And God says that in the new covenant, he's going to put his spirit within his people. And watch this. He's going to cause them to observe his statutes. So when someone says that for the New Testament Christian, the law of God is irrelevant, I say that is patently absurd. Considering Jesus' statements, considering the entire testimony in Scripture about the law of God as being an actual part of the new covenant promises, that's an absurd claim. So you might ask the question, okay, well then how does this work? Again, bird's eye view. Let's just look briefly, quickly today at the apostles and the law. You've already seen Jesus' statement towards the law. You've already seen that the Old Testament promise that in redemption, as God saved people, he would do with his law something that he had not done before. It would actually be a part of what God was doing in the world to establish justice in the world. He would do that through redeemed people. Don't forget that when God says in Isaiah 2 that the law would go out, notice where it comes from. The nations stream up, and then it says the law goes forth from Zion. It comes from us. Did you get that? So the proclamation of the goodness of God's law comes from the people of God as they're redeemed. It's not just dropped on society. It wouldn't do any good if it was because you would have a lot of rebellious people with law over them and it would do nothing in in the way of salvation for them. Only Christ is where you can have salvation. But how do the apostles feel about the law of God? How does the New Testament talk about the law of God? Is it different than Jesus? Is it different from that Old Testament? Well, let's take a look briefly. Again, we're just scratching the surface, bird's eye view. Go to Romans chapter 3, because Jesus says that he didn't come to abrogate it, but to fulfill it. And we're going to talk about what that means as we move through the text. But let's look at Romans chapter 3 and look at how the apostles... Talk about the law of God. Romans chapter 3. Now, again, this is brief, and it's a cursory look, but just briefly, Romans chapter 3. This is the Apostle Paul after he condemns really all of humanity in Romans 1. 
It says everyone knows God. They suppress the truth of God and unrighteousness. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. That's Romans 1. Romans 2, Paul now directs his attention to the Jew, to the self-righteous Jew who thinks because they're in the mere possession of God's law that that makes them right before God. And Paul cuts their legs off. And he says, you who say don't steal, do you steal? You who say don't do this. And he basically tells him like, look, being in mere possession of the law of God doesn't justify anybody. You'd have to actually do what was in the law if that was your standard. And then he moves all the way through that and it must leave everybody in a position where they say, well, then where are we all at before God? Well, Paul is obliged to answer you. In Romans chapter three, Paul says what in verse 10? As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. No one does good, not even one. And now he moves through this catena of verses, a collage of verses he pulls from the Old Testament, showing that his gospel is consistent with really the entirety of Scripture. And he takes us all to a place, listen, where you have to understand, I have to understand that this is your place before a holy God. And I think that there's a danger. Watch this. Oh, I'm going I'm to talk to the kids now. This is a benefit of family integrated church. I'm going to talk to the kids. Kids, you have a real danger in your life. This is the danger in your life being raised in a Christian home. You could be raised in a Christian home hearing so much about the grace of God, the goodness of God, and you could hear so much about how lovely Jesus is, how passionate he is for sinners to love them and to pursue them, that you could neglect to see in yourself that you are worthy of God's condemnation. Because you can hear so much about the love of Jesus and the goodness of Jesus that you can miss the fact that Jesus, right, what makes his love so special and really unreal to sinners is the fact that he is holy and we're not. And the fact that Jesus had to go to a cross to die a death that is absolutely grotesque and awful because of our sin. And listen, and listen, you can't, you got to come to grips with this. You are never going to know Jesus ever, truly know him intimately as Savior and as Lord until you recognize that Romans chapter three, here, this section, that's you before God. That's you. That's me. Not righteous, not good, and worthy of death, ultimately. That's the text. Is Jesus lovely? Amen. Is he passionate about sinners? Amen. Is he merciful? Amen. Is he, is he, the kind of God that you can come to and cast yourself on and he will forgive you and walk? Absolutely. But don't forget, there's a space between there, right? Of, of redemption and you where you're at now. The space between there is where you recognize before God that you are worthy of death, that you are a sinner against a holy God and that he is right and good for condemning you to hell forever. And this text moves you, after it shows us our sin, it moves you to a place where it puts you in face-to-face with the law. Romans chapter 3, verse 19. Look what it says. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. You might be tempted to think, oh, that means it's for Jewish people. Right? No. So that... Every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. The law was given, listen, listen, 
The law was given, one of its purposes was given to shut you up. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. I like to take credit for that, but it's in the text. The law was given so that your mouth closes because there's no more arguing, is there? When you're confronted with God's character and his standard in front of you, it shuts you up. You can't brag. You can't boast. You can't actually paint a picture of yourself that's not true because God's law exposes you. It's like getting face-to-face with God and comparing attitudes, right? It's like getting face-to-face with God and comparing who's selfish, who's a liar, who thinks lustful thoughts. You see the point? The law of God exposes you for who you really are, and so it just puts you before God's throne and you're, you're quiet. You have nothing to say. Listen, here's what you're going to get. In Romans 1 and 3, in 1 and 3, you've got two places that say that on the last day, no one says a word to God in their defense. In Romans 1, it says this, that people know God so well, they are suppressing the truth of God and unrighteousness, that on the last day, it says this, that they are unapologetous without a defense. They're not even arguing coherently before God. And then in Romans chapter three, it says the law shuts you up. So where's your hope? Jesus is the only hope. There's the only place you can cast yourself to be washed clean and forgiven. But watch what it says here in Romans three about the law of God. It says this, verse 20, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Brothers and sisters, This past week, the Pope arrived in Washington. The Pope, representative of Rome, stood before Congress and spoke. And people asked the question, why prolong the Reformation? Why make it a big issue? Why, why not unify and come together? Because, brothers and sisters, there is no true unity apart from truth. And why is the issue between Rome still an issue? Because in Trent, Rome anathematized, that is, declared a curse upon the gospel and suggested and, and actually dogmatized the idea that you could be justified before a holy God, through God's grace, and your obedience to his law. Paul says here in this text that no human being will be declared righteous, that is before God, by these works of law. It'll never happen. But the apostle Paul here says, look, the purpose of God's law is to increase your knowledge of sin, to shut you up, and it will not justify anybody. That's one aspect of the law of God spoken about by the apostles and prophets. But how about this? The Bible talks about the ineffective nature of the law of God for salvation. Look in Romans 3.28, same passage. I'm going to keep you in one text here just to show you a consistency of thought. Romans 3.28, look what Paul says here after he declares God giving Jesus up as a propitiation for our sin on that cross so that God would be just 
and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus, and he does throw as a gift by his grace through the redemption that's in Christ, he says this, watch here, Romans 3, 28. He says, therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from works of law. So how are we declared righteous according to the apostle Paul? Is it through law in any way? He says, we are declared righteous by faith, watch, apart from works of law. Now, people have often said, well, where does the Bible say you're saved by faith alone? Well, brothers and sisters, where do you want to start? You want to start with Abraham, Genesis 15, 6? Or we'll start here, watch. If we are justified by faith apart from works of law, then you've got faith over here by itself. What is faith by itself apart from works of law? Faith alone. Paul says here that the law of God is given to shut you up. The law of God is given to increase your knowledge of sin. The law of God will justify nobody and that by deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight through the law. So watch what Paul did here. In this single section of scripture, Romans 3, Paul just anathematized and demolished every single man-made religion you will ever face. Roman Catholicism, denies the gospel here. Mormonism denies the gospel here. Jehovah's Witnesses deny the gospel here. Every single system, man-made religious system, ultimately says that the law of God is something you obey to get right with God. The Bible says the law of God is given as a gift of his grace, of course. In the Old Testament, it was good for God to give the law, but the law of God is given as a purpose to put over sinful people, to show them their sin, to shut them up and to drive them to Jesus. So that when they're saved by Jesus, who did fulfill the law, when they're saved by him, God redeems them, washes them, makes them alive, puts his law now inside of them so that the works that they now do are done by God in and through them. So these works that I do now as a believer, they don't justify me. They don't save me. They don't make me righteous. I want to do them because I'm new. And I'm already forgiven. I already have peace with God. They're all the works that you do as a believer are not somehow to gain God's favor. You do them because you're in Christ and already have his favor. You're in God's home. You're his child. And that's your place forever. So Paul says that the law cannot save you. There are many other places. I'll point you quickly to the book of Galatians. It's a very short read. Check it out. It says a lot about the law, law in that degree. Now, I'm going to say this quickly. And I need you to look at this one. So if you have not opened your Bibles yet, repent. And then go to Romans 3.31. Listen. You might be tempted after listening to Paul explain the law and the fact that it is actually condemning on people and it increases their knowledge of sin or no one will be justified by it, you might be tempted to actually say, oh, Paul's teaching antinomianism now. He's, he's saying, really, the law is all bad. It's all icky, right? It's in the same text. So is Paul saying about the law that it's just all bad? No, Paul is able to think in more than one train of thought. That one aspect of the law is that sinful people cannot be justified by it. And at the end of this same text, after he just said that the law of God 
will not justify anybody and that we are justified by faith apart from any work of law. He then says in Romans 3.31, do we then overthrow or some translations say make void the law by faith? He says what? By no means. Some of your texts have an exclamation point. Paul didn't do that. It's just a good idea. Because that's the point. Are we then now saying, Paul's saying this, am I saying that because the law is given to shut you up and that it will justify nobody and that we are saved by faith apart from it, am I saying, Paul, now, because we're saved by faith apart from work, am I saying that now we just overthrow and void the law? He says, by no means. Actually, he says, on the contrary, we uphold the law, we establish the law. Did you catch that? The attitude of Jesus and the apostles towards the law of God is that faith in Christ does not overthrow God's law. That because of faith in Christ, we actually establish the law. Now stop for a second and let that sink in. Because oftentimes in our culture, we see people's attitudes towards the law being one of, it's either grace or law. We have to recognize there's an aspect to the law of God that exposes our sin and drives us to Jesus because it shows our inability to keep it and the fact that we are rightly condemned before God. And then there's the aspect of the law of God in Christ's kingdom that is wholly relevant and abiding today because of faith in Christ. Now, last thing. Quickly, I want to point you to these. We're going to unpack these more. But these will be things you can study this week on your own. And come back next Sunday for part three. The attitude of the apostles regarding the law of God. There's, it was an old way to break the law up. I think that it ultimately can be done a little bit better in expression. But people have often broken the law of God up into three sections, Right? It's kind of a, it's a well-known way to break the law. One is moral, one is ceremonial, and one is laws about justice, civil sanctions, the civil part of the law. You might say, what's that mean? People say, like, the moral law is like, love your neighbor, don't steal from them, don't lie. Like, that's moral law, right? Don't commit adultery, that sort of a thing. And they say the ceremonial law are things like the priesthood, the temple, the sacrifices, even the dietary restrictions, those sort of things were ceremonial. Those were shadows pointing ultimately towards Jesus. And then people say, well, the judicial law are things like, hey, if you kill somebody, then you forfeit your right to live. God commands you to lose your life. Those are laws of civil justice. People have often broken the law up in that way. I don't really think there's a way to ultimately rip the law apart completely in sections like that, but that's a semi-helpful way to do the explanation, okay? How do the apostles feel post-cross, post-resurrection, post-ascension? In other words, Jesus did everything, right? And now he's ascended on his throne. The apostles said, Psalm 110.1, what? Sitting on his throne, putting his enemies under his feet, right? So now we're there now. What do the apostles say after Jesus finished his work 
and ascended. What do they say about the law, moral, ceremonial, judicial? Okay, again, quickly. The moral. Go to Romans 3, since you're already there. Romans 3, sorry, 13, 8. Romans 13, 8. This is a famous section here in Romans 12. The Apostle Paul tells Christians, don't avenge yourselves. Romans 13, he says that it's the duty of the civil magistrate to bring about God's justice in the world. So there's that different institutions are spoken of there. We've talked about that in the last couple of weeks. But watch what he says. Watch what he says in Romans 13, 8. He says this, Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you should not commit adultery, you should not murder, you should not steal, you should not covet. Where do people generally put that? Moral law, right? As part of the Ten Commandments. Look what he says. He says, And any other commandment are summed up in this word, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Now, now walk with me here for a second. This is the Apostle Paul, post-cross, post-resurrection, post-ascension, telling Christians that, look, this is the fulfillment of all of God's law. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. And you might think, oh, that's the law of Christ now. That's the new law. Brothers and sisters, is that new? He quoted from Leviticus. Love your neighbor as you love yourself is in Leviticus. And what is Paul saying here? You want to fulfill the law now as a spirit-born believer, as now alive from the dead, as now in Christ, as he says in Romans 5? You want to do now what the law actually required? He says, love your neighbor as you love yourself. Love is the fulfillment of the law. And you might be tempted to think, so that's new? Well, it's new in the sense that now in the new covenant, you are washed of your sins now alive from the dead and now can do it. Because now, indwelled by God's spirit, with God causing you to observe his statutes, now you love in the way God has called you to. So watch this. In Matthew, and just write it down because you know it. So I'll give you the reference so you have it. In Matthew 22, starting in 34, Jesus has the famous scene, Right? where he's challenged by somebody. Well, not so much challenged. He's asked the question. Somebody says to him, what? Master, what's the greatest commandment in the law? And what's Jesus say? One, love God. And he says, two, what? Love your neighbor. Now I'm summarizing there. Jesus actually quotes from the Old Testament. He quotes from Deuteronomy chapter six, and he quotes this text, essentially. And what does he say? All of the law and the prophets. Sound familiar? That's what he said in Matthew 5, what he said he did not come to abrogate. Jesus says, all and the law and the prophets are summed up and have their foundation on those two things. Love God, love neighbor. And he says to somebody who asked him the question, what's the greatest commandment? He says, it's love God, love neighbor. All of the law and the prophets come from love God, love neighbor. That's exactly what Paul is saying here. No different. So you catch this? Watch. Loving God and loving neighbor are the foundations of God's law. Brothers and sisters, I have a question for you. Is loving God, loving neighbor, is that still relevant in the new covenant? Thank you. Then you've granted me all of God's law. 
Because loving God and loving neighbor were the foundation of all of the law and the prophets. So if I was to ask you, how do I love God and love neighbor? You could go a step up and say, well, God says in the Ten Commandments, what? You shall have no other God before me. You shall not make an image. And what do you see there? Love God. And then what do you see on the other side of the table? What do you see? You shall not murder. You shall not covet. You shall not lie. You shall not steal. You getting it? Love God, love neighbor. And then you go, what's that look like? Well, it looks like this. And then you say, well, what happens if somebody violates that? Well, God's talked about that too. If you violate love for God or love for neighbor, God has in his law, this would be a just sanction if somebody violated neighbor. Are you seeing it? The new covenant in Christ is a better covenant than the old. Whereas what was rudimentary or elementary in the Old Testament, which were types and foreshadows, a law that is written on stone tablets, that is now all those shadows gone, fulfilled in the substance, which is Jesus, with a once-for-all sacrifice, with people who are now alive from the dead, with the law within them, no longer outside of them, putting pressure on them with the inability to do it. Now you've got people who have within them a desire to love God, love neighbor. And what would it look like? It would look a lot like what God talks about in the law. So, How about the ceremonial law? Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. I'm going to read that to you. Ephesians chapter 2. You might ask a question. How many of you guys have seen... Well, how many of you guys saw the the thing that Dr. White and Dr. Brown and I... I'm the only one that wasn't named a color in that thing, okay? Dr. Brown, Dr. White, and I did um, um, a little film, right, about the Supreme Court and gay marriage stuff. And in that, Marcus did a fantastic job, but... In that, se- we put a little section, Marcus put a section of that famous scene from, oh, what was it, Marcus? The, the, the TV show where the president is talking about the law, West Wing, that's right, West Wing. It's a famous thing that it's just shared just constantly, right? Because they, they're like, gotcha, right? And it's where the president is like dissing this, you know, this arrogant, holier-than-thou Christian that's really just mean. They always paint the Christian as sort of a mean-spirited stick in the mud, right? That's, you know, if, 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 if anybody from another planet watched our television shows today, they would think Christians are the most evil, demented, you know, self-righteous people ever, okay? But I digress, okay? So in this thing, there's the claim that, well, do you wear mixed fibers? Do you plant different seeds and such and such? Do you do this? Do you do that? And it's sort of like the, it's the crushing blow to Christianity, you Christians are cafeteria Christians. You know, you say one thing, you do another. You like certain laws in God's law, but not others. You're inconsistent. You're cafeteria Christians. When anybody brings up to you questions of, do you have mixed threads in your clothing? Do you plant seeds? And they do the thing of the law, the dietary restrictions. What it displays is they never actually read their Bible. Because in Ephesians chapter 2 is one section, one place where the Apostle Paul explains that those specific ordinances were meant to be temporary. And they are now abolished now because they've had their fulfillment in Christ. In Ephesians 2, 11, he says, Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, these are non-Jewish people, 
called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you, this is, watch, by the way, huge. This, massive. Remember that you were at that time separated from Messiah, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers, listen, to the covenants, plural, of promise, singular. Now stop for a second. Some of you guys are like, I don't know why that's important. I'm really glad that you haven't been affected by a lot of false teaching. So praise God we get to pour good stuff in right now. Covenants, plural, of a singular promise. They go together. And Paul says, Gentiles, you were at one time strangers, aliens to the commonwealth of Israel, the covenants, plural, of promise, but watch, having no hope and without God in the world, But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Now watch, hang on to this just for later. Like take this, put it in your pocket, like for later, okay? He says, you were at one time far off from the commonwealth of Israel, from these blessings, these promises, this promise. He says, but now you've been brought near. Brought near to what? The covenants of promise and now the commonwealth of Israel. So anybody that wants to say there's a distinction between the church and Israel has got to face Paul here. Watch this. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace in my reconciling us both to God and one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So these commandments, these what we call holiness code laws, have their fulfillment, what they were intended to accomplish in the Messiah and have brought now Jew and Gentile together. Now pause for a second because we're almost done. I need you to grab this. Those dietary restrictions, the holiness code, Those pointed people to a separateness from the world. Those pointed the Gentiles, as they looked into Israel, they would have seen them as a peculiar people. They smelled different, worshiped different, acted different. They looked different. Everything about them was separate and distinct. So when the Gentiles saw the Jews, they saw them as a very, very distinct, separate people, a holy people. And Jew and Gentile were separate because of those things. And now that Christ has come, we see that Jesus is the Holy One, the Righteous One, the Separate One, the Pure One. And He has now come as the fulfillment of all those things pointed to. And now Jew and Gentile can come together now in one body before God, understanding fully what all those things pointed to, and still seeing seeing them as meaningful for what they were intended. But now no longer separated as two distinct people, but now one people in Christ. He is our peace. So eat up. Last thing. What is the apostles, what was the apostles' view of the law 
contained in the judiciary. Ah, this is where people go, oh, well, obviously. Jesus isn't concerned with justice in the earth. That's not his thing. Jesus is concerned with saving sinners for heaven one day. He would never be concerned with establishing justice in the earth. He would never be concerned with the coastlands waiting for his law. Right? So people will say, well, obviously, the judicial part, God's not concerned with that at all anymore. Well, let's take a look. 1 Timothy chapter 1. The apostles' view of the law of God. And let's talk about specific judicial law. How do they feel about it? 1 Timothy chapter 1, and this will be brief, and I want you guys, if you would, go home, study these passages, read them. Okay, here we go. 1 Timothy chapter 1, okay, now watch timing, right? Timing, post-cross, post-resurrection, post-ascension. Jesus has done everything. He's ascended and seated now with all authority in heaven and on earth. Here's what Paul says to Timothy. Verse 8 Now we know that the law is good. Is that present tense? I think that's present tense. And which law is Paul referring to? God's law, the known law. The law is good. Watch. If one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not. How's he speaking? Is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane. Watch this. For those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, brothers and sisters. What in God's law is at its highest level the civil sanction for those crimes, the death penalty. The Apostle Paul says the law is good. It's not laid down for the just, but the unjust. It's good that you use it if you use it lawfully. He names some death penalty sanctions as crimes. He says those are good and keep reading. Liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, watch, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Did you catch that? He just said the law is good. Use it lawfully. He names death penalty, civil sanctions in the law of God, and he says in accordance with the gospel. So far from being opposed to the law of God, the apostles recognize rightful place. The apostle Paul in Acts 25, 11, I want you to see it and that's where we're done today. In Acts 25, 11, and again, write these down. Go back to these passages, read them. In Acts 25, 11, I don't have time to give you all the details here. Just read a few chapters before to get the context. The apostle Paul has been brought up on charges And you can read about those charges in Acts 24. I'll go ahead and read that to you right now as you're getting there. I see you guys still turning your pages. And when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Since through 
you, we enjoy much peace. And since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation in every way and in everywhere. We accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. For we have found this man a plague, Paul. One who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him by examining him yourself. You will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse you. There's a little context, profaning the temple, the sorts of things. Now watch, post-cross, post-resurrection, post-ascension. Paul now is before the judiciary. Now watch, if... In Jesus, God is no longer concerned in the new covenant with justice. If Jesus has fulfilled it all and God no longer has concern in that area. As a matter of fact, the law is abolished in that sense. This would be a premier opportunity for the Apostle Paul to tell people that no, this is all wrong. There is no death penalty any longer. Jesus is not concerned. I'm saved. Watch what Paul says here. Acts 25, verse 11. Paul says this at trial. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. Do you see Paul there as a born-again, spirit-filled, justified Christian who has peace with God, who has been washed of all of his sin? He says publicly, if I've done anything worthy of death, then I don't object to dying. So the apostles in the New Testament, bird's eye view, how did they feel about the law of God? Morally, ceremonially, ceremonially, and judicially. They said it was good. They showed its rightful place, its proper usage. They pointed to its fulfillment in Christ. And here's what I want you guys to see now to summarize all of it, to make sense of it all. And this is where I hope you begin to see the beauty of all this. Hebrews 10. This is awesome. Hebrews 10, I'm going to go ahead and start reading. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. You get that? What was that? What law was that? What is it? Ceremonial. Consequently, when Messiah came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. 
in burnt offerings and in sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. Watch. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the blood of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. You see? And brothers and sisters, that law, that commandment, those things they were doing have now been fulfilled in Christ. And if you want to know in the end, at the very end of this message, like, what's the point, Jeff? That's the point is that God's law is fundamentally good. And it found its ultimate fulfillment in Jesus Christ. And though the law cannot justify any person ever, the law is fundamentally good and points you ultimately to Jesus to find in Him your resting place so that you can access God with bold and confident access now washed, with a righteousness that is not your own. It is a gift of God through faith in Jesus. And now as a person who's redeemed in Jesus, covered in his righteousness, you now relate to the law of God in a new way. And you begin to see the law of God as good and not oppressive. You begin to now have the law of God flow from your life in true obedience with an internal obedience, not simply external conformity. Which, by the way, as, a wet, as to wet, something wept your appetite, points you to why Jesus said your righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees, because their righteousness was a righteousness of their own. And it was a righteousness that was ultimately mere externals and not true obedience from within. It was a righteousness, again, of their own, and it was not seeking God's righteousness as a gift this help? It will be put up online so you guys can review it later and go through it again. And again, this is bird's eye view. We're going to come down. We're going to ask questions. We'll bring up even challenges and say, okay, now where do we go from here? But I think the ultimate thing I want, you to, leave, I want to leave you with today is this. God said that he would save people from their sins. He would wash their sins away and he would do something in them that they could not do for themselves. And he would do it, watch, for his name's sake, to vindicate his name. So the hope you and I have in the gospel is not only a washing away of our sins, but it's in the God who actually empowers us to now live new lives. And if you are like me, and you really stink in many ways at your relationship with God, 
The hope you and I have is that God has done in Christ what we could never do ourselves, and He does by His Spirit what we can never do for ourselves. And the promise you have in the gospel is that God doesn't simply stop at saving you for heaven one day. He saves all of you every day, and He will ultimately be vindicated on the last day when He brings you into His presence once for all, washed of all your sins and covered in the righteousness of Jesus for eternity. You and I abide in Christ forever. How could Jesus ever say to you and me, listen to this, how could he ever say to you and me, I will never lose you, I will never forsake you? How could he say that? Well, we know he's sovereign and he's all-powerful, right? But have you sinned since you were saved? Right? What is any transgression against God's law? It's a violating the whole thing. So you and I stand every day, practically speaking, as violators of God's law every day. Amen? Even after Christ. So how could Jesus say to you, he'll never lose you, he'll never forsake you? How could that ever really happen? Here's why. Because the righteousness that you stand before God with, then, today, and forever is not your own. It's Jesus' righteousness and his perfect law-keeping. That's the hope you have in the gospel. But it's not a hope that simply ends at you, again, at peace with God, going to heaven one day. It's God saving you forever and doing in you what you can never do yourself, watch, to vindicate his name as holy before the entire watching world. Brothers and sisters, if we actually say the law of God is no longer relevant in a new covenant, we cannot make sense of God's plan for history. It'll never happen. And when we deny God's good law today, We lose our ability to preach the gospel because we have nothing to call anybody to repentance to. And we become foolish salt to the world because we have no standard to uphold before them to say this is God's standard. So let's, brothers and sisters, become Psalm chapter 1 kind of people. Blessed is the man who meditates in his law Day and night, he is like a tree planted by streams of water. His leaf does not wither, and you bear fruit in proper season. Let's pray. I pray, God, you'd bless, Lord, the message that went out today for your glory and the fame of Jesus. Challenge us, continue to teach us, God, wondrous things from your law. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you've washed our sins away. Thank you, Lord, that it's only through faith in you that we have redemption and nothing in us ever. I pray that you put your gospel on our lips and put fire underneath our feet so we rush into the world with your good news. In Jesus' name, amen.